in, um, in classical music, the word motif is a word that perhaps just describes just a few notes, short, memorable, distinctive. I tried to toy with words, but you know, dun, 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 and you know that it is Darth Vader. And, and you have them because then you are meant to associate those little sounds with a person or a place or an idea. They're meant to bring to mind for us that person, place, idea. They might not quite stay the same. Actually, they may develop. They may get more complex as the story progresses. Often, in fact, you, they blend together different sort of motifs and ideas. If, you've, if you're familiar with the, um, the soundtrack for Hamilton, you will know a number of different sounds that kind of get brought together and weave in with each other. Sometimes you've got little streams and they kind of blend in and form a, a faster flowing river and finally you end up at the sea. And yet if you just listen to the end of it, if you just listen to the last few songs or the, or the bit near the end, then, then you don't quite know the story so far. You don't quite know where it's come from. You don't see the development. You don't see the progression. You just know the famous stuff at the end. And in many ways, the Bible is like a piece of classical music. And we get themes and motifs that, that develop and cross over and grow, and eventually they arrive at the crescendo of the cross and the resurrection. And yet if we just focus on the end bit, the familiar bit, then we will, we will miss what's really going on at the end. We will miss vast swathes of what it's all about, how it's grown and developed and progressed, the, the story so far, if you like. It would be as if we were opening up a fiction book and you arrive at the end without reading the stuff beforehand. And so you don't know how you've got there. And so what we're going to do, as Tony was explaining to us a little while ago, is we're going to think about this idea of substitution through the Bible as we lead up to Easter. Different signposts, different passages, and yet they all have something to say. They all draw us forward, ultimately, to the cross and the resurrection. And so I pray each week we will get a little bit more, and as we arrive at Easter, we will grasp and appreciate and enjoy and treasure more of what is going on at the cross, more of who our God is, more of what he's like. Welcome to you if you're on Google Translate. Hopefully that makes more sense now. And so this motif, this idea... This concept of substitution, you see, it, it develops and it grows and it matures. Our God is a global God. He makes global promises. We, we know that from Genesis 12. He promised to Abraham and Sarah that one from them would come and bless the nations. Which means, as we look at these vital passages about substitution, you will see each time there's a kind of notch upwards. There's an expansion, there's a development, there's a growth. Let me try and show you what I mean. So this week we're in Genesis 22. Hopefully keep that open in front of you. And you'll see it's a substitution of one animal for one person. Okay, next week we're in Exodus 12, and it is one animal for one family. And then the week after that we're in Leviticus uh, 16, the Day of Atonement. It's a substitution of, of animals, at least two animals, but for a people. And then the week after, Isaiah 52 and 53, it is the Lamb of God for the nations. And so you see, you go from one to a family to a people to the nations. And then we have Easter Sunday. And then actually the week after that, we're thinking about the idea that we are all to be sacrifices now because of his sacrifice. So we are sent out as sacrifices. So if we kind of come through him and now we are all those 
who are living sacrifices for him. So do you see, as the Bible progresses, as these motifs grow and develop, so the story expands, it's, it's global. Which means, in one sense, the cross shouldn't be a surprise for us. We'd almost expect it because we understand what's come beforehand. We see the trajectory. We see the development. We know what's gone before. It's fair to say that for some of us in the room, perhaps, this idea of Jesus dying, the Lamb of God dying for the sins of his people is horrible. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe, maybe you struggle with that concept, that idea. What, as Tony was saying, why do Christians keep going on about Jesus and, and keep going on about the cross and, and more so at Easter? What is it? Well, I think if we understand this idea of substitution, we understand these little motifs that have grown and developed and flourished, then that will help us grasp why the cross matters so much. And in fact, more than that, when we understand it is God in the flesh who comes to be our substitute, then maybe the light bulbs will start going on. That's enough for now. Um, Genesis 22, open in front of you. And the story so far in Genesis is that God has been making uh, global promises for his people. Why? Well, because God's people have walked out on him. And in with that comes sin and suffering and everything is out of kilter. And there's mess and there's mayhem, there's chaos, there's calamity. And yet into that, God makes promises to his people. He's already promised Eve in Genesis 3 that this beautiful glimmer in the darkness, the one from you will come and ultimately crush God's enemy even from Genesis 3, and so we're flipping the pages, trying to work out who this person is. And then Genesis 12, we've already mentioned, this another glimmer of hope that, that for Abraham and Sarah, one from you will come and, and be a family and bless the nations. Another star in the midst of the gloom. So God makes these global promises, even from the beginning. And the problem is, well, Abraham and his wife Sarah have been unable to have kids. And to, to say the least, they are getting on a bit. And it's looking quite unlikely they're going to be able to have children. And so God has made the promise and yet nothing's happening. And the years pass and nothing happens. And they, they wait and they wait and they wait and they wait. And there's a false start or two. You can have a look back and see them. But finally, Isaac is born. And it feels like we've got there. It feels like we're laughing that's what Isaac means. It's exciting, and God's promise is coming to pass, and all systems go, all eyes on Isaac. Come on, let's look after him. Let's, let's make sure he's very well protected. Let's turn on the helicopter parenting to the extreme, because this guy really matters. And we are rejoicing with Abraham and Sarah. This is the miracle baby. Thumbs up. And then Genesis 22, verse 1 and 2 says, sometime later, probably a decade or so later, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham... Here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your miracle baby, take your son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region in Moriah and sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain that I will show you. And we think, what? Seriously? One of the best questions, I think one of the hardest questions for a Christian to ask, and it's a question that 
we ought to ask ourselves relatively regularly is, could I give this up? Or, or how could I cope if this thing was taken away from me? Whatever that thing might be for you, that person or item or idea or dream or hope or status or position or project or that thing that you, you know your heart clings to so tightly. And it's one of the best questions for us to ask because God consistently, gently says he needs to be first in our lives. And if ever the answer is no, we couldn't give up that thing. Our hearts cling too tightly to the person, item, dream, status, hope, position, project, or whatever it is for you. And maybe that thing has got too important. Maybe that thing begins to compete with God in some sense, in an unhelpful way. And so it's one of the hardest questions because it's so painful. Remember a question with a conversation with a friend a little while ago. Now, who and we were—I was trying to explain something of this. Um, why it is that God must be, or the fact that it is that God must be first and foremost in my life, even before my wife or my children or my job or my house or my car or whatever that thing is before my hopes and my dreams even, that God must come first. And they found that very difficult to understand, but actually even harder to accept. But I think the consistent message of the Scriptures is we're to be those who love God first. He is the one we were made for. He is the source of life. Before anything else, any good thing that he gives us, we treasure the giver first. And so now put yourself with me in the place of Abraham in our passage for this morning. And you want to know what putting God first looks like? Well, here we go. Genesis 22. And so our first point behind me, hopefully, is a man of faith who obeys. It is shocking, isn't it? It is shocking. We can't deny that. It was a demand that seems to be out of odds with human reason or, or divine purpose. And we're meant to, I think, scratch our heads and ask questions. This was a test in the darkness. And I think we're to assume that Abraham was as baffled as we feel. In fact, it's as if we get glimpses through the story into the pain inside Abraham's heart. It's like there's a little window and we get to peek through. Isaac means laughter source of joy, but we're not laughing now. There's an irony. Fifteen times in the passage, the writer highlights that it's, it, he's the father, Abraham is the father, and Isaac is the son. Almost like our noses are being rubbed in it. And yet Abraham obeys, verse 3. Early the next morning, Abraham got up, saddled his donkey, and he took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. And on the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servant, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. And the narrative is almost slow and plodding. It kind of increases our tension. It's like a film and you see there's going to be this, there's something's going to happen. When is the moment going to happen? It heightens our sense of how long Abraham must have suffered. Three long days of traveling. This secret cloud hanging over him. He knows what's going to happen, but nobody else does. 
this child whom they had prayed for and longed for and whom God had given them, doesn't belong to him. Abraham had to put his trust not in the promised son, whom he had finally received from God, but in the God who had made the promise to him. What do you make of verse 5? I look down, it's slightly strange, isn't it? Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. And why is Abraham so sure that we will come back? I mean, maybe he's just been a bit sneaky, a bit of deceit in Abraham. He's not letting the servants in on the plan and he knows what's going to happen and maybe fearful that they wouldn't let him go if, if he lets them in on the plan. Maybe it's wishful thinking, hoping that God won't go through with it. Maybe he's not really being that serious. Good question. I think verse 5 is interesting. I think it's fairly key as well. Hebrews 11 is one of the, or part of the New Testament commentary on much of the Old Testament. And I think it helps us here. Hebrews 11, verse 17 and 19, if you're scribbling stuff down. But by faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son. Even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead, and figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the death. So the writer there seems to say that that Abraham knows ours is a God of life, and he can raise the dead. Indeed, to all intents and purposes, he had brought life because Sarah's womb was closed for years, for decades. And from that place came life. Abraham knows that ours is a God of life. And if he has promised something, if he has promised that through Isaac he's going to be a people to bless the nations, then he will bring it about. It it will come to pass. It will happen. He had promised that through Isaac, and so he will provide through Isaac. And even in the confusion, even with the question marks, he lives by faith. He knows what God is like, and he knows what he's promised, and he knows what he can do. And so he takes step after step after step. Abraham comes up to in James chapter 2. And this little account here, James 2 verse 21 to 23, Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar. You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. So in Genesis, Abraham has already been credited as righteous. He believes God, he believes his promises, he trusts him. And then here we see something of the outworking of that, the fruit of his faith in 3D. I think we need to pause. There are lessons for us there. We we can trust God's ways as being good always. When everything else seems to contradict them even, because we know the one who makes the promises and we know what he is like. It, It is a common thing. I reckon there'll be people in this room this morning who are battling with the idea of, can I trust God? Do I trust that he knows best? Can I trust him to live his way? Can I lean on him? 
Will he be faithful? Is he good? Has he got me? And passages like this say yes. And there might be question marks. And it might be hard. But he has got you and you can lean on him. And he is good. Still, it looks crazy, doesn't it? This boy, this heir of God's promises, is being offered up to him. And Abraham knows the one he's trusted, and so he obeys. And they ascend Mount Moriah. And as they do so, our attention must now turn from Abraham to the one that he is trusting in, to the object of faith. So if we've got a man of faith who obeys, secondly, we've got a God of love who provides. Pick up the next bit of the story from verse 6. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. And as the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, father, yes, my son, Abraham replies, the fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. And when they reached the place that God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. And he bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Don't lay a hand on the boy, he said. Don't do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God, because you've not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. The tension mounts as the mountain is climbed. And Isaac is looking around thinking his dad's had a bit of a senior moment. Come on, Dad. Quick inventory. You've got the fire. Well done. You've got the wood. I think you've got a knife in there as well. Ah, Dad, you've left the lamb. What are we going to offer? And there's Abraham, step by step by step, trusting, trusting, trusting. All the question marks. And the story continues, they reach the place, they build the altar, they arrange the wood, and then, can you feel it? Then he binds Isaac, and he lays him on the wood, on the altar. And he takes out the knife, and he lifts it, and at the crucial moment, verse 11, God speaks to him. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. And we all breathe that collective sigh of relief. We're meant to feel the tension. And the knife cuts, but it cuts rope. And there's a ram in the thicket, and God provides an offering in the place of Isaac. And into the darkness comes light. And pretty much the story wraps up there. At least that's where we're going this morning. But what's it about? We've already said it. It is a story in one sense about Abraham. James and Hebrews have shown us that we are meant to look at it and think, what does active faith look like? What does it look like in the midst of confusion, of questions, of chaos? It looks like trusting God. And indeed, his active faith is then kind of woven into God's sovereign plans and promises. 
such that God will say, verse 16, I swear by myself that because you've done this and not withheld your son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. But is it just a question of Abraham passing the spiritual krypton factor, proving to God that he is he's okay, he is good enough, that he really trusts him? Is it just Abraham passing the test? Why Abraham's son? Why the substitute? Why this site, this place? I think those are great questions, and they are questions that we will come back to week on week, but we're going to begin our answer today. And hopefully you'll see the motif grow and develop and flourish through the weeks. Because this is one of the foundational passages that will point us ahead. And the pages turn and the symphony of Scripture begins to develop and play out. And and this story points beyond itself, points to a conclusion. It longs for a crescendo. Have a listen to this. Help you feel, helps me feel something of this. It's, it's almost a poem. I thought it was beautifully put. It was uh, written by a, a writer called Jean Williams. I don't think it is a poem, but actually the way she's written it is so nice. It kind of wrestles what's going on. She says this. She says, this is no, no small family drama, this. No psychological tragedy. No theatre played out for the amusements of the gods. What was lying there was a boy, yes, a man's only son, his one hope for the family and for the future. But what lay on the altar that day was also the son of the promise, the seed of the great nation, the hope of worldwide blessing. From this boy would come a son, and from him a son, and from him a son, and yet more sons until the one and only son came into the world. God made visible, salvation clothed in flesh, hope in human form. She continues, what God asks of Abraham, he gives himself. Once again, a father offers up his only son. But this time there is no reprieve, no last-minute escape clause. The sky is unbroken by a voice, and instead darkness gathers. And the full weight of a father's anger descends, a cross instead of an altar, nails instead of a knife, a lamb instead of a ram. Blood thick on the ground, a voice whispering, Father, a life given so that others may live. Three days later, the father receives his son back from death. And suddenly the story of Abraham and Isaac doesn't seem so strange, but inevitable. A line drawing for the future to fill in. And friends, you see, Christ's death in our place brings us life. He he takes the just punishment that we deserve. We have a God who cannot simply overlook sin and ignore it and pretend it's not there. He takes the real guilt that we have upon himself. He is our substitute. And so we have life. I came across this in a book I was reading a while ago. It describes the dream of a Christian in his late teens. I assume it's real. He he talks of going to sleep one night, wracked with guilt because of his sin from that day. Listen to this. He says, I dreamed I was in a room filled with index card-sized files. They were like the ones libraries used in the past. If you're over 30, you might understand that, but... Those little cards, six by fours. When I opened the file, I discovered that the cards described thoughts and actions from my life. 
The room itself was a crude catalogue system of everything, good and bad, that I'd ever done. As I browsed the cards under the headings, friends I've betrayed, lies I've told, lustful thoughts, I was overwhelmed with guilt. It says, long forgotten moments of wrongdoing were described in chilling detail. Each card was in my handwriting and signed with my signature. Sadly, my misdeeds woefully outnumbered my good deeds. And then Jesus entered the room. And he took the cards, and one by one, he began signing his name on them. His name covered my name and was written with his blood. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you've never actually received that gift yourself, and you hear me talk of substitution, and it kind of makes sense out there somewhere. You know something's not right inside you, and you, you know something of the reality of sin and things that you've done and said and thought and this substitution thing kind of makes sense, but it, is that just a story or is that your story? You know, today would be an amazing day to receive that gift. To trust that substitution for yourself. To receive grace. Because you see, Genesis 22 is a foreshadow of what is to come. To the place where God's people's sins are finally dealt with forever. Because in years to come, on Mount Moriah, the place would for a time be a construction site. Because there's a temple being built there. A place where the people of God can worship him. A place where sacrifices for sin can be made again and again and again. Where the sin of God's people will be dealt with for a time. And then in years after that, there would be a man who would walk to the summit of Mount Moriah, to a place called Golgotha. And he would make the ultimate sacrifice. He wouldn't need to die again and again and again because his one death is enough for you and for me forever. And actually, if you think about it, Genesis 22, this is a story all about Jesus because here is the true man of faith who obeyed. As Abraham trusted in the darkness, as Isaac carried the wood for his own sacrifice, Jesus would willingly carry his own cross and walk to his death. And more than that, he's not just the true man of faith he obeyed, but he's the true provision that our God of love gives, providing the substitution that we need. I think this idea of substitution sets Christianity apart from any other faith. Because apart from this idea, apart from the cross of Christ, we stand before a holy God, unable to please him. That gnawing thought of wrongs and guilt doesn't go away. The catalogue of sins, they just pile up more and more and more and more. And what do we do with them? They're all filed away. They're all signed by us. We, we know they're legitimate. But then the son enters the picture. And... The ram in the thicket, the provision from God, the lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And he comes and he signs his name in the place of ours. And he dies the death that we deserve. And he is our substitute. And so you and me have life. Let's pray.
Lord, we say that we love you. We thank you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you that he was the true man of faith who obeyed. We thank you that he was the true sacrifice and substitute that we needed. Thank you that he comes and deals with our sin, makes us clean, brings forgiveness. Well, we don't deserve that. But we thank you for your extraordinary love for us. Guard us, please, from a mere formality of just knowing these things as an idea. Or... Might we see more, more of your extraordinary love. Thank you that as we look to Jesus, thank you that as we receive him, trust him, enjoy him, thank you that we have life. In his name we pray. Amen.